Hi, welcome to Bookie, which unlock big ideas from world bestsellers in audio, text, and mind map. Please download Bookie at Apple Store or Google Play with more features, get your free mind snack now. Today we will unlock the book Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. The Sacklers are a family of billionaires whose names were once synonymous with extravagant cultural philanthropy. How did they amass such fabulous wealth? Tragically, their wealth was at the cost of others' lives and livelihoods. At the height of the destructive U.S. opioid crisis of the 1990s, it's estimated that one in 15 people had a drug habit. Everyone knew someone driven to despair by addictive drug use. You may imagine that some people were making a fortune supplying all those drugs, among them were the Sacklers. More than simply manufacturing and distributing pharmaceuticals, the Sacklers had a promotional mission, seeking to boost their market share and crush their competitors. However, the family insulated themselves. Keeping in the background, they operated through a network of unassuming corporate entities to make themselves unassailable, their precise influence was hard to fathom. It takes Patrick Radden Keefe's meticulous detective work to unpick the ways that the members of the family exerted control, and finally, he succeeded in connecting the family to the diabolical profiteering that led to mass drug dependency and many deaths. In the 90s, a painkiller named OxyContin was at the center of the crisis. The powerful medicine dramatically numbs pain because it contains a huge dose of morphine, an addictive drug derived from opium poppies. Over time, if you take the medication, you need to take more and more to get the same effect. If you stop, you experience vicious withdrawal symptoms. You may be asking, why would anyone use this painkiller if it has such intense side effects? And why would doctors prescribe it? The answer is that generally, doctors believe what they are told. They wrongly believe that oxycodone, the main component of oxycontin, was a benign form of morphine. That is where the Sackler family came in. As well as being part of the pharmaceutical industry, the Sacklers were experts in marketing. To sell the drugs, they invented an epidemic of pain and created an urgent need for super-powerful drugs to combat the epidemic before claiming that opiates were the answer. Then, they incentivized a massive sales force to ensure their OxyContin was the market leader. But, the Sackler story does not begin or end with OxyContin. Now let's find out about this dynasty in three parts charting their rise and fall from grace. Part 1, Arthur Sackler, a doctor selling tranquility. Part 2, Richard Sackler and the pain community. Part 3, the Sackler family undone. Sophie Greenberg and Isaac Sackler had come to the U.S. in the 1910s. They married and had three children Arthur, Mortimer, and Raymond. They were doting parents and pinned their hopes on their boys. Industrious and intelligent, the eldest, Arthur, was determined to live up to his parents' big expectations. While the boys were growing up, the family subsisted on a meager income from their grocery store in a part of town favored by recent immigrants. With the Great Depression, their fortunes took a hit and they had to sell the shop. A born entrepreneur, Arthur stepped in to help while still at school, selling advertising space in his school's newspaper and creaming off a percentage cut. He was also inventive. He proposed to a small business school that advertised in the school magazine that they paid him to handle their marketing. He devised a scheme to raise their profile, printing the business school's logo on rulers and giving them for free to local students. At 15, he was earning enough money to support the whole family. Following their parents' aspirations, all three boys went on to study to become doctors, 
but they had to fund their own ways through college. Arthur was vigorously industrious. He managed to hold down a range of part-time jobs while at medical school, earning a sufficient surplus to send money home for Sophie and Isaac. By the time he finished his studies in 1933, he had somehow amassed enough cash to purchase a new grocery store. During this period, Arthur was serious about the ethical responsibilities of his medical vocation. Following a passion for psychiatry, he started work at Creedmoor Psychiatric Center, a sprawling asylum complex. When they graduated, Mortimer and Raymond both joined Arthur at Creedmoor. Arthur was troubled by his patient's suffering. At the hospital, the primary treatment for many mental ailments was electric shocks to the brain. The shocks left patients in a temporary stupor, distressed and confused. Arthur became convinced that a pharmaceutical solution for psychiatric ailments had to be preferable. Doing clinical research at the hospital with his brothers, Arthur discovered that injecting patients with histamine, a hormone that dilates vessels so sending more oxygen to the brain, had a similar effect to the electric shock treatment. Only several years later did a new drug Thorazine appear, revolutionizing treatments and liberating psychotic patients from incarceration. The drug was exactly what the brothers had envisaged. Arthur's incredible talent was not limited to clinical research, however. While at Creedmoor, he was simultaneously associated with the William Douglas McAdams advertising. This agency worked exclusively with the pharmaceutical sector, targeting advertisements directly at doctors. It was a natural environment for Arthur. He understood doctors and the ways they thought they were particularly susceptible to the influence of their peers. So he was cunning in his campaigns and used professional endorsements to convince doctors to prescribe one medicine rather than another. One of his first significant successes was with a new antibiotic, teramycin, manufactured by Pfizer, a Brooklyn firm. Arthur knew you didn't want a niche product if you wanted to penetrate a large market. His campaign branded teramycin as a broad-spectrum drug, which suggested that it could treat many different infections. The phrase broad-spectrum sounded clinical, but Arthur had just made up the term himself. The second thrust of his campaign was to swell Pfizer's force of eager young sales representatives. In the beginning, the rep group comprised only eight people, 18 months later, there were 300, and by 1957, Pfizer commanded a selling army of 2,000. Arthur conceived his mission as education, not advertising. With important new drugs coming onto the market, doctors needed information. Companies developed new wonder drugs, advertisers made doctors aware of them, and doctors prescribed them and saved lives. Somewhere in this process, things got confused. In the following years, Arthur and his brothers strayed further and further from medical ethics, forgetting a doctor's commitment to preserving life at all costs. While they flaunted the authority conferred by professional certification, their hunger for profit grew and grew. Another huge success in Arthur's advertising business is the promotion of Librium, a minor tranquilizer. To detail its marketing story, we need to first go back to the Thorazine we mentioned earlier. Thorazine was a major tranquilizer. It regulated seriously psychotic patients and kept them out of institutional facilities like Creedmoor. However, this medicine left a larger market of less serious mental illnesses untouched. As such, researchers started to look for a minor tranquilizer, a compound to tackle less severe conditions. Roche Pharmaceuticals found two solutions, Librium and Valium. Librium and Valium were very similar, effective for almost any unspecific nervous ailment. 
Roche enlisted Arthur to market their new products, but they faced a problem. The U.S. government prohibited advertising pharmaceutical products directly to the public. Arthur invented a solution called native advertising, selling products through articles slipped into magazines, masquerading as general interest editorial. Just before Librium was launched, one of the largest circulation magazines in the U.S., Life, ran a story. The article was ostensibly about gentle ways to subdue wild animals. It extolled the virtues of Librium, claiming that it was free from side effects and able to calm animals without making them feel sleepy. Humans too could benefit from the drug's power and enjoy tranquility without any downsides. Before long, Arthur took native advertising a step further, launching his own magazine for doctors, The Medical Tribune, reaching 600,000 physicians eventually. The pages were full of advantageous research findings, articles lauding his clients' medicines, and, of course, lots of advertisements. Of course, such an advertising method would bring them troubles. One time Arthur was scrutinized for deploying spurious endorsements in advertisements. Did he deliberately intend to mislead doctors with his adverts? He was called to testify before the U.S. Senate, where he proudly presented his professional credentials suggesting his accusers were amateurs meddling with vital healthcare. He spoke eloquently to the assembled senators. He explained he had an urgent mission to provide doctors with up-to-the-minute information, informing them of new cures as soon as they were available to prescribe. In short, his adverts saved lives. With Arthur's clever yet cunning marketing strategies, Librium became the most profitable drug of all time. With Valium, it was given for all manner of minor ills and feelings of unease. As Arthur's deal with Roche ensured that his bonus increased in proportion to the sales volume of drugs, he was richer than ever. The dynasty of the Sacklers began to take shape. Librium and Valium were marketed as perfectly safe and non-addictive, but Valium later became the most widely abused prescription drug. It was not until many years after that Roche was vilified for underplaying the drug's downsides and promoting it too aggressively. However, shielded by his interests in diverse corporate entities, by and large, Arthur escaped any censure. Outside his business, Arthur was a charmer and an esthete, determined to leave a legacy. He wanted to see the Sackler name engraved in stone on cultural institutions around the world. He started collecting Chinese antiquities and ingratiated himself with leading art museums with big gifts. He paid for a new wing to the Metropolitan Museum in New York and, in his single magnificent gift, donated his collection to the Smithsonian in Washington. Arthur's apparent beneficence was often canny. Other advantages offset his giving, like providing museum storage facilities for his precious collections and substantial tax breaks. That brings us to the end of this part in the history of the Sackler family. We have heard how Arthur, Mortimer, and Raymond rose from humble beginnings to dominate the world of pharmaceutical advertising and how Arthur developed new ways of connecting with fellow doctors to persuade them to use Librium and Valium. Taking a cut from every prescription written, Arthur became fabulously rich. He was also a lavish philanthropist, seeking to become influential in the arts. He hoped the Sackler name would be honored and carved over the portals of great museums for eternity. Today we are just sharing limited content. To unlock more key insights of world-class bestseller, please download our app. Just search for Buki at Apple Store or Google Play, get your free mind snack now. Dir hat dieser Podcast gefallen? Dann klicke jetzt auf Abonnieren und empfehle ihn weiter. Bleib immer auf dem Laufenden und folge uns bei Twitter. 
Instagram und Facebook. Mehr Podcasts findest du auf meinpodcast.de.